guest. Thank you for joining us here today. We are marching, making our way through the book of Ephesians. We find ourselves this morning in Ephesians 6. So I invite you all to stand to your feet as we hear from God's word this morning. Guests, if this, if you need a Bible, you will find one in the pew that's in front of you. If you don't have a Bible to read at home, feel free to take that Bible home with you. Ephesians, the sixth chapter. We're going to read verses 5 through 9. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. You can pray with me one more time. Father, this morning I am grateful that my hope does not have to stand on the hollow ground of feelings or the hollow ground of circumstances or the hollow ground of anything this world has to offer. Today, Father, my hope is only built on who Christ is and what he has done for us. Our hope this morning, Father, is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. As we come to you in your word, Father, we are hopeful of the need and the help that you would give to us. All of us are in mighty need this morning to hear from our God. So I pray that as the gathered community of the people of God are here in this room, Father, we gather around your word and we yearn to hear you speak to us. For that, Father, we're going to need the help of your Holy Spirit. We're going to need your precious Holy Spirit to help us to fight distraction. We're going to need your precious Holy Spirit to help us to not wander off into what the rest of the day is. We're going to need your precious Holy Spirit, Father, to give us the gift of self-forgetfulness, to be lost in your word, and to be eyes open, ears wide open, Father, to what you would say to us. So would you magnify yourself through the preaching of your word? You grant us much grace. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There are some words that are just downright uncomfortable. If you're looking at your ESV Bible, the first word in our passage points to the uneasiness of uncomfortable words. Look at that first word in verse number five, bond servants. Now, we don't usually use that word that much today, so it's much more easily digestible. This word, bond servants. We might even know what this word is pointing to, but since that word is not in front of our faces this morning, we can handle the word bond servant a little better. We caution ourselves 
against looking at this little superscript next to the word bondservant in our Bible because we know what's at the bottom of the page. And if we see what's at the bottom of the page, that will open up all types of difficult questions. If your Bible, if you're looking at it right now, has a small number next to the word bondservant, I want you to trace your eyes to the bottom of your page to see what it says. It says slaves. We might be a little fuzzy when it comes down to the word bondservant, but we are absolutely not fuzzy when it comes down to this unpleasant and this uncomfortable word slave. In fact, my, my ESV Bible, maybe yours, has an additional footnote for this word that helps us to see how fraught with peril this term actually is. My ESV Bible says, next to the word slave, for the contextual rendering of this Greek word doulos, that's the Greek word for the word slave, see the preface. In other words, this word has to be held with such sensitivity that the ESV Bible actually includes a lengthy paragraph about it in its preface under the title of the translation of specialized terms. This is an uncomfortable word, this word slave. I want you to remember where we are in Ephesians. Chapters 1 through 3 displays the glorious wonderful Trinitarian work that should bring about into being glorious praise for every one of us who've tasted of glorious grace. Chapters four through six, where we are now, we've termed this as the church is therefore. In light of the gospel, we're asking this question, how then should we live? And our text this morning finds us in a passage of scripture that's been known as the household codes. It describes how various members in a household are to behave in light of their new identity in Christ Jesus. How many of y'all know this morning, the gospel transforms everything. It casts a different light on every aspect of our life, and it calls us to behave as if who Jesus is and what Jesus has done matters. We've already heard about wives and husbands. We've heard a couple of weeks last week about children and parents, particularly fathers. And now we end this discussion of the household codes by hearing how Paul addresses slaves and masters. It's instructive to me that Paul first addressed three classes of people who were denigrated in one way or another in their society. Women, children, and slaves. In Roman society, slaves were considered as chattel. If you're not familiar with that word, chattel is another word for property. Slaves were objects that could be bought, that could be sold, that could be rented as any own possession that the master might have. And yet Paul, who calls himself a slave of Christ, before he even mentions himself to be an apostle in the book of Romans, had something so earth-shattering to say about this subject that it would wreak havoc on the very foundations of the institution of slavery. This leads to three questions that I have from our text this morning. 
Question number one, what did Paul say to the slave and to the slave master? Question number two, is the Bible, and by connection Christianity, pro-slavery? And then question number three, what are we to do with this text today? How does it call us to live today? Let's think about the first question. What did Paul say to the slave and to the slave master? First, it's important to note that, it is, that he is talking to the slaves and to the slave master. Here's the slave first. The question that I start off with is, what does he mean by this word doulos, or this word slave, or this word bondservant that the ESV has translated, uh, it's put it in its place? A slave is someone who is under the total control of another person. The word depicts, if you can envision in your mind, it depicts bondage. And it depicts limitation where one person's will is wrapped up entirely in the will of another person. A slave, how many y'all know, does not have a right to do as he or she pleases. A slave's service is not a matter of choice. It's not dependent on how or on, on, on whether the slave feels like serving or not. Like how one scholar puts it, he says he defines a slave as someone whose person and service belong wholly. W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy to another person. I want you to hold on to that definition. Paul tells the slaves what they are to do next in our text, if you're looking at it. Slaves obey. Who are they to obey? They are to obey their earthly masters. Literally, obey those who are according to the flesh, according to human standards, lords. Now, some might be mad at Paul right here when, he, when we see this. Slaves obey. Why didn't he tell the slaves to rise up and speak truth to power? Why didn't Paul command that the slaves protest, hit the streets with signs that read, hashtag cancel slave masters? Why didn't he call for the abolition of slavery in Roman society? One reason that I find plausible is that Paul understood who he was dealing with. The Romans, who were the leading authority of the day, ruthlessly stomped out any insurrection in the small and yet growing community of the Christian church in Roman society would have posed a serious threat if they advocated for the immediate and complete overthrow of what was a social reality. Paul was up to something much more, though, as he injected into slavery an ethic that would ultimately rot it from the inside out. Paul follows this commandment with six ways that the slaves were to carry out their master's orders. They were to obey their earthly masters with fear and with trembling. Verse number five. Now, at first glance, this might look like it means that the slaves were to obey with horror and to obey with dread. Masters, of course gave their slaves much reason to be afraid. History records many, 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 many stories of the tragic ways that masters use fear to control their slaves. That, that alongside of things like acts of violence and shame and dehumanization, we can definitely understand why one scholar would have wrote, or one scholar did write, that fear was the order of the day. Paul, however, is thinking about something else. He calls the slaves 
to obey their earthly masters with deep respect and reverence. Deep respect and reverence towards the masters? Maybe Paul did tell, first, tell, did tell Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 that all who were under the yoke as slaves ought to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Our context, though, here in Ephesians has someone else in mind. Someone who is infinitely higher and categorically different from any earthly master. It's this master who deep respect and who deep reverence is designed for. Not only were the slaves to obey their earthly masters with deep respect, they were to have the right motives. They were to obey with a sincere heart. Verse number five again. They weren't supposed to fake the funk as it were. They weren't supposed to be duplicitous, acting like they were obeying while in fact they were not. They were to obey wholeheartedly with their undivided attention, focused in on the task at hand. Once again, some might find fault with Paul. Paul, you're going too far here. Paul, you done crossed over the line here. We get and we understand that the slave must obey, but wholeheartedly, Paul, sincerely with a deep respect from the one who owns him or who owns her? You've gone too far, Paul. Why would a Christian slave do that? Paul reminds the Ephesians that there's a greater reality that speaks into, that informs, and that absolutely transforms and changes the slave's earthly reality. Christian slaves were to obey their masters as they would obey Christ. Once the slave becomes a Christian by believing in the finished work of Christ, their ultimate allegiance was transferred from all earthly masters to the master who verse 9 tells us is in heaven. I mean, I know Christ transforms all who are his. The same Paul who wrote this to the Ephesians wrote to the Romans and said, for the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul called the slave to obey her earthly master with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart in the same manner that she would obey her heavenly master, Christ, with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart. I want you to remember that definition of slavery. A slave is someone whose person and service belongs wholly to another. The slave in Christ belongs wholly to Christ, and his obedience to his earthly master is an expression of his obedience to his heavenly master. Our text this morning tells us that there is a way that the slaves weren't to obey, though. Don't obey your earthly masters by way of eye service as people pleasers. Let me ask you a question. Has anybody in here ever been guilty of doing something in order to be seen doing it? Thank you. 
I appreciate that truth teller in the room this morning. You didn't wash the dishes as an act of self-giving service to your tired wife. You did it only to be seen. You made sure that you were the last person to leave work so that people can see that you stayed behind to put in the work as a team player. It's another question. Has anybody ever done something in order to impress somebody? That was your sole goal, impress another person. Paul tells the slaves that they are not to do this because they have a higher calling. They aren't to obey their masters like that. They aren't to serve with the only goal of being seen. And as soon as the master leaves, they are back to half-hearted service. How are they supposed to do it? How are they supposed to serve? Text goes on to tell us that they were to act out of their fundamental identity. Paul reminded them of who they were, and Paul reminded them how they were to act out of that identity. In other words, Paul said to them, be who you are. Since they were slaves of Christ, they were to obey as slaves of Christ, not as slaves of whoever their earthly master was. This looked like doing the will of God, not grudgingly, but from a heart that stands amazed at the grace that has called them to serve the greatest master and the kindest Lord. Their great master and this kindest Lord is the one Ephesians have already told us in chapter 2, who sits in the highest seat in the universe, far above all rule and authority, far above all power and far above all dominion. As the old church folks used to say, he sits high and he looks low. Obeying their earthly masters as slaves of Christ look like serving the commands and the demands of others with a goodwill, which means to serve with a good attitude. One person, or one version of the scriptures actually says to obey enthusiastically. Paul, wait, wait, wait. Wait, what if it's hard to obey my master? What do you say about that, Paul? Obey with a good attitude. You are serving the Lord Christ and not men. But, but, but Paul, what about when I'm mistreated by my master? Obey enthusiastically. Jesus is Lord. You are his and not your earthly masters. But Paul, Paul, you are free. You don't understand. How am I to do this? It helps if you know something. But what should I know, Paul? You should know that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or is free. One person puts it like this, Paul wants Christian slaves to know that their good works, all of their good works, will be noticed by the master who really cares for them and that they will be rewarded. Paul encouraged their work of obedience by pointing them to a future day that he told the Corinthians about. It's that day when we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And we all must give an account for the good and the bad done in the body and receive the reward that is due. In light of the day, in light of that day, slave of Christ, Paul would say, make it your aim 
to please your heavenly master. Julie, do you see what lethal poison that Paul injected into the dark heart of slavery? He undermines it by a new ethic that's based on the lordship of Christ and the new identity of the slave of Christ. This would have tremendous implications, especially for the last group of people that Paul mentions and addresses in this section. Masters. Masters. Those who are lowercase lords over people do the same to them. Do the same what? The same attitude that our Paul exhorted the slaves to have towards you is the same attitude I'm telling you to have towards the slave. How many of y'all know that that would have been revolutionary for the masters in Paul's day to do something like that? Absolutely revolutionary. It totally, totally changes the relationship where a master could no longer threaten his slave or her slave because there's a fresh awareness that he too, even though is an earthly master, alongside of his slave has a master in heaven and he too is a slave of Christ. He is also to master with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, not by way of our service as people pleasers, but as a slave of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with the goodwill as to the Lord and not to men, knowing also, knowing also, master, that his master and his slave's master is, is in heaven and he will not show favoritism. Masters, too, will receive from the Lord what is due to them, whether good or bad. Threatening has no place when both slave and master have the same master over them in heaven. This leads to my second question. If Paul talked like this, and we see other places in the Bible that instructs how the people of God are to operate, under this societal norm of slavery, then is the Bible, and by connection Christianity, pro-slavery? This is an important question. Our brothers and sisters who are planting a church in North Minneapolis, whether you know it or not, you might find yourself engaged in that community where the answer to this question is going to have serious implications on your ministry in North Minneapolis. This charge of Christianity being pro-slavery is the only thing someone might need to hear to turn away from the gospel call. This is an important question. I want you to consider a few things that has helped me out with this question. One of the main challenges that I find in talking about slavery here in America is that it is quite easy to ask this question, is the Bible pro-slavery, is Christianity pro-slavery? It's very easy to ask that, that question with America's slave history in mind. It's important to keep some of the differences between slavery in Roman times in comparison to slavery in, here in America. It's important to see some of the differences. Here, here are some. In Paul's day, racial factors played no role in slavery. Slaves in the Roman Empire were mostly made up of prisoners of war or debt and consisted of nearly every single race under the Roman dominion. You couldn't distinguish a slave by his skin color 
by their clothing or by their speech. American slavery, however, was fundamentally filled with Africans who were stolen from their homeland. Paul, by way, condemned enslavers. He condemned enslavers who took someone captive in order to sell them into slavery in 1 Timothy. Paul would have looked at America's peculiar institution and would have judged it as contrary to sound doctrine. Many slaves in the Roman Empire could expect to be released during their lifetime. Free people actually sold themselves into slavery with the knowledge that it wouldn't be forever. If you're familiar with American history, you know that American slavery gave no such option to its African slaves. Generations on top of generations of slaves never tasted the light of freedom, to get, never tasted the light of freedom at all. Paul, once again by way, by the way, encouraged slaves to gain their freedom if they could in 1 Corinthians 7. That makes me wonder if Paul and Harriet Tubman, Tubman known as the Moses of her people, would have been friends. Not only could Roman slaves gain their freedom, they were also eligible to become citizens of Rome. And once again, if you're familiar with American history, you'll know that citizenship wasn't granted to the African Americans until 1868 under the 14th Amendment. Ironically, this year, 2019, we commemorate what some historians have come to consider one of the first arrivals of slaves on the shores of this country, 1619. But it wasn't until 1868 where African Americans were granted citizenship. All that being said, I don't want to draw a picture to you as if Roman slavery was a cakewalk. And yet, there was a vast difference between it and American slavery. One person put it like this, he said it perfectly, race-based chattel slavery, which American slavery was, is manifestly among the most despicable institutions ever to disgrace human civilization. This type of slavery is not, however, what's in view in the text of Scripture. Christianity, rightly understood and applied, absolutely is not pro-American slavery. February 20th, you didn't know this or not, was the 124th anniversary of the death of Frederick Douglass. Then Christianity would applaud how he ended his narrative on the life of an American slave. I wanted to read a portion of it to you. It's a little long, but it's, it's worthy of it. He said this, What I've said respecting and against religion, I mean strictly to apply to the slaveholding religion of this land and with no possible reference to Christianity proper. For between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference, so wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of the one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slaveholding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of this land. 
Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. I look upon it as the climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, and the grossest of all libels. Never was there a clearer case of stealing the livery of the court of heaven to serve the devil in. I'm filled with unutterable loathing when I contemplate the religious pomp and show together with the horrible inconsistencies which everywhere surround me. We have men stealers for ministers, women whippers for missionaries, and cradle plunderers for church members. The man who wields the blood-clotted cowskin during the week fills the pulpit on Sunday and claims to be a minister of the meek and lowly Jesus. The man who robs me of my earnings at the end of each week meets me as a class leader on Sunday morning to show me the way of life and the path of salvation. He who sells my sister for purposes of prostitution stands forth as the pious advocate of purity. He who proclaims it as a religious duty to read the Bible denies me the right of learning to read the name of God who made me. He who is the religious advocate of marriage robs whole millions of its sacred influence and leaves them to the ravages of wholesale pollution. The warm defender of the sacredness of the family relation is the same that scatters whole families, sundering husbands and wives, parents and children, sisters and brothers, leaving the hut vacant and the hearth desolate. We see the thief preaching against theft and the adulterer against adultery. We have men sold to build churches, women sold to support the gospel, and babies sold to purchase Bibles for the poor heathen, all for the glory of God and the good of souls. The slaves auctioner bell and the church going bell chime in with each other. And the bitter cries of the heartbroken slave are drowned in the religious shouts of his pious master. Revivals of religion and revivals in the slave trade go hand in hand together. The slave prison and the church stand next to each other. The clankering of fetters and the rattling of chains in the prison and the pious psalm and the solemn prayer in the church may be heard at the same time. The dealers in the bodies and the souls of men erect their stand in the presence of the pulpit and they mutually help each other. The dealer gives his blood-stained gold to support the pulpit, and the pulpit in return covers his infernal business with the garb of Christianity. Here we have a religion and robbery that allies, who are allies of each other, devils dressed in angel robes, in hell presenting the semblance of paradise. No, Christianity is not pro-American slavery. What about the slavery addressed in scripture? Is the Bible pro-slavery there? I want you to consider three points that helps me out. Instruction does not mean approval. Did y'all hear what I said there? Instruction does not mean approval. Just because the Bible instructs in a thing does not mean the scriptures approve of that thing, right? Both the Old Testament and the New Testament assume the existence and the reality of the institution, the bitter institution of slavery in all cultures. Neither Testament turns a blind eye to it though. While we don't see 
an endorsement or rejection of slavery in the scriptures, we do see both positive and negative aspects concerning slavery. We also read of the instructions and the regulations that are given to God's people concerning how they were to be categorically different concerning this issue. Categorically different. Israel's main identity was that they were freed slaves of Egypt. And they were given laws on how to deal with slavery in light of their identity. Another person put it best. We can plainly affirm that if the three clear laws of the Old Testament had been followed by the slave-keeping country of America, particularly in the South, that is anti-kidnapping, anti-harm, and anti-slave return regulations, then slavery would not have arisen in America. If just those three things were followed, you shall not kidnap. You shall not do harm to this person. And if this person is running, if he has freed himself from slavery, you shall not return them back to their master. If if these three things were done, there would not have been this person saying a, a history like we have in our country. Concerning the New Testament teaching, the apostles' concern was not with the maintenance of the institution of slavery, and it certainly was not an endorsement of it. Instruction does not mean approval. Two, I want you to consider creation. Ironically, Jesus' answer about divorce gives us a great answer to the question at hand concerning slavery. If you have your Bible, shoot over to Matthew 19 so I can show you this. Matthew Matthew 19, verses 3 through 8, he says, it says this, And the Pharisees came to Jesus and tested him by saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, well, well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Jesus said to him, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning... It was not so. Why was instructions given to Israel concerning divorce? It was due to the hardness of heart. Was divorce God's original intention in creation? From the beginning, it was not so. The same thought can be applied to the question of slavery. Why was the instruction given concerning slavery? It was due to the hardness of the human heart. Was simple slavery where a human would own another human being? Was this type of simple slavery God's original intention in creation? From the beginning, it was not so. Creation tells us that all humans are made as equal image bearers of God, not property or chattel to be owned by another person. Three. Consider the person in the work of Jesus Christ. 
Oh, what a friend the slave has in Jesus. Oh, what a friend. Isn't Jesus Christ the Lord, the perfect friend to the slave in who Christ is? Philippians 2 tells us that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. It goes on to say that he became obedient to the Father's will to the point of death. Was not Jesus exclusively devoted to the will of the Father? Hebrews 10 tells us about the attitude of Christ. Behold, I've come to do your will, O God. Isn't Jesus the perfect blueprint in his passion to please God? Romans 15 tells us that Christ did not please himself. John 5 tells us that Jesus did not seek to please himself, but the one who sent him. John 8 has one of the most astounding sentences in all of the Bible, in my opinion. Jesus says, I always, always, always do those things that please the Father. Always. Isn't Jesus the supreme model for the slave to follow in his sufferings? 1 Peter 2 tells the slave to endure unjust suffering because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The perfect master, who was in turn the perfect slave, bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. This leads me to ask you to consider not only his person this morning, but to consider his work. The work of Christ and his life and his burial and his death and his resurrection and his ascension, this, this work of Christ has snatched slavery's heart right out of his chest. Think about what Christ has done between the slave and the slave master. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. The work of Christ does not destroy difference. You look around, there's still male and females in this room. It does destroy distinction. It levels the playing field as it were. No matter who you are, slave or free, male or female, you are spiritual equals both in need of the gospel, with equal access to it. The slave and the, and the master relationship is dissolved, and both slave and master kneel at the foot of the cross. The work of Christ turns the slave and master relationship into a brother and brother relationship, and that changes everything. Philemon is a wonderful example of this. You should read that when you get home later on. When Paul sends Anisimus back, he does two things. He first affirmed the personhood and the dignity of Onesimus formerly. Paul says he was useless to you, but now he's useful indeed to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending you my very heart. He also made quite explicit how the relationship has changed now that Onesimus was in Christ. But this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever. Listen to this. No longer as a slave, 
but more than a slave. As a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Whatever other influences contributed to the demise of slavery, it should not be questioned that in undermining the discriminatory hierarchy of social relations that is at the heart of slavery, Christianity sounded the death knell of slavery. Or to change the metaphor, it laid the explosive charge. And one of those explosive charges that would ultimately, although sadly belatedly, lead to detonation and the destruction of slavery. Y'all have been hanging with me for a long time. Thank you. Let me end off with this last thing here. What do we do with this text today? What do we do with it? I think one thing I'll say to you is live life in light of your identity. Be who you are. David Paulison helpfully, helpfully reminds me that this section of Ephesians that we're closing up with, and we find inside of this section what he calls our common calling. He says this, when you think about the core of your identity, you are first and foremost wife, you are essentially child, furthermore, you are essentially slave to the Lord. Whether you are in authority or under authority in your workplace, you are a slave to Christ, called to obey and fear him. You may be a man, but you are a wife. You may have kids, but you are a child. You may have people answering to you, but you are a slave. Each of us in our core identity is meant to live as a subordinate. Realize that the testimony of scripture is that every single person in this room is a slave. If you're not in you're not a Christian this morning, you are a slave to the cruel master of sin, which only has your eternal destruction in mind. If you're a Christian this morning, I have some news that might make you want to shout here. He whom the Son has set free is free indeed. He who the Son has set free is free indeed. But you're not free to yourselves, you are now free to be a slave of Christ. I got more scripture to read. I got to stop. <laughs> oh, man. If you say that Jesus is Lord this morning, this means that you are a slave to the greatest, kindest, most powerful master who loves you and is for your eternal good. There could be no greater privilege or higher honor than to be called his. We have to be very careful in this application of the text because we don't live in a slave society here in America but we can apply it to our work. This text has shown us an attitude, a manner of service, and a motivation for those who call themselves slaves of Christ. A slave of Christ humbly submits to the person and lordship of Christ. And remember once again that definition that I mentioned earlier. A slave is someone whose person and service belong wholly to another. If you're in Christ this morning, you belong wholly to Christ. A slave of Christ exhibits unquestioned obedience to her Lord. She's scared to the core of Jesus asking her, why do you call me Lord and don't do what I say? The slave of Christ has an exclusive preoccupation with pleasing his Lord. With Paul, his fellow slave, the slave of Christ makes it his ambition to be pleasing to Christ, yearning for the day to hear from his master, well done, good and faithful slave. 
good and faithful slave. Well done. What would happen tomorrow morning, Jubilee, if you, who are a slave to Christ, went to work armed with the instructions found in this text? How would your work change by doing what's in this text towards those who are in authority above you? Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will all receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving Christ. You may ask, I don't know how to do this. Remember how Pastor John started this section of Ephesians. Only way you can do this is being filled with the Spirit. So seek the help of the Holy Spirit to do what he's calling us to do. Pastor John, can you come on up here? Thank you all for riding out with me. I had a lot to say. <laughs> if you can close us in prayer, sir, we'll be good to go.